Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 71st episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. It's been a crazy couple of weeks here. Yeah, it has. It has. The news flow, the narratives, everything changes very quickly. Yeah, market moves, news flow. Um, you know, it's just been a very interesting week, which doesn't surprise me because what everyone has gone through in 2020. So I expect, fully expect actually to see more of it before the year's over, (laughs) to be honest with you. Or being conditioned. Right, exactly. So, um, but with all that being said, we'll get into that some, uh, or some of that stuff here in a minute, but we'll go through the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track first. So these numbers are as of the market close on November 9th, and the data is from Coifin. So the S&P 500 index is up 8.58% for the month and up 10.01% for the year. The Dow up 10.02% for the month and up 2.35% for the year. The NASDAQ uh, tech heavy index is up 7.35% for the month and up 30.55% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 10.75 for the month of November and down, uh, or excuse me, in positive 10.01% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States is up 9.83% for the month and up 0.52% for the year. Uh, The two-year Treasury, or excuse me, the three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.11%. Two-year Treasury yield currently sitting at 0.18%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at a whopping 0.95%. So almost back to 1% on the 10-year Treasury. (laughs) We had a massive move in it yesterday on Monday. That would have been uh, November 9th. It was a big move to the upside on that yield. Yeah, and what you know, and and in plain English, what that means uh, for investors is that you know typically that means money is flowing out of bonds into stocks because bond prices and yields have an inverse relationship. So when uh, you know the bond yields are rising, typically means um, people are putting more money into stocks. Hence, you know, yields have to rise to entice people to invest in these treasury bonds, right? Exactly. And you and I have been talking about how we feel there's going to be some upward movement in that yield in order to entice people to lock their money up in this example for 10 years. Right. Right. Exactly. The other comment I wanted to make as you were reading over these numbers is, would you do me a favor, please, and repeat the figures for the S&P 500 month and year, please? Uh, Plus 8.58% for the month and plus 10.01% for the year. So the point I'd like to make here for listeners, given that's um, only been, you know, what, six, seven trading days so far this month, when you miss out and you try to time the market on such a short-term basis, especially around events like a presidential election, in my opinion, that is a losing proposition. Mm-hmm. And if you were out of the market in the first six or seven trading days of this month, where would your year-to-date return be if you were in the S&P 500 index, if you were in cash? Right. You'd be up like 2% this year. Mm-hmm. And so I want to make this point for listeners that a lot of times it's time in the market, 
not timing the market. Right, exactly. I, throw that I, out think, there. I can't remember who did this survey. I, thought, I think it was maybe UBS that they okay. s- surveyed a bunch of clients, I think, that had over a million dollars invested. And they took a survey on you know how many people made adjustments or hedges or de-risked before the election. And it was a significant amount. I think it was somewhere in the, like the 40% range did it. Um, and again, you know, if that'll help you sleep at night, I guess that's fine if you can afford to do that. But then you're also, you know, kind of stuck <laughs> once markets rip and rally like they have. And then what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of put it best in, uh, in, in previous client meetings or on this podcast when you say, you know, the easy decision is de-risking. What's the hard one, Mark? Yeah, it's getting back in. Getting back in. Yeah, that's the right hard twice. one. Yeah, it's it's really hard. So, I, I, I just you, you mentioned that popped in my head. I wanted to share. Yeah, that and that, that's and, an important point. Yeah, and historically, we're in a couple of the most bullish months out of uh, the year on a seasonality basis, too. So Another excellent that, point. You know, you and again, that that's a fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and again, it's just one of those things where I think that people are just so hyper focused on one single event, like the presidential election, they're not considering you know, the consequences of outcomes of not, you know, thinking about things, you know, as a total world view or, or picture yep. other than just one, one event. Right. Agreed, my friend. Um, <clears throat> so some, um, headlines and current events from the week, it's been pretty busy as everyone has, uh, obviously, um, been aware of, uh, Joe Biden will presumably, presumably be the 46th president of the United States as of right now. Um, And it looks like more than likely gridlock in Congress will remain. There are two key Senate runoff elections that will take place in Georgia in January to finalize the seats in the Senate. So in Georgia, for people who aren't aware, if the uh, candidate that's running for Senate doesn't reach the 50% voting threshold plus one vote, then it goes to a runoff election with the top two vote getters. Correct. Um, that. So there's two Senate seats uh, available in Georgia that will go to a runoff election. Um, as of right now, it looks like uh, Republicans will hold on to the majority in the Senate and Democrats obviously are maintaining control of the House. So as of right now, it looks like there's going to be gridlock. However, that's not a shoe in. Right. And we know anything can happen, and we know that there's going to be a lot of money that's going to get spent in these uh, Senate runoffs in Georgia. So, again, that is not something that is that is a for sure right now. And obviously, you know, if if the Democrats do win those two seats, then they would have majority in the Senate because it would be 50-50 with Vice President-elect um, Kamala Harris casting the you know the vote to give the Democrats the majority Got in it. the Senate. Um, but as of right now, the markets, in my opinion, are pricing in that the Republicans will maintain um, the the Senate and therefore there will be gridlock. I would so. agree with that, Mark. It's kind of what the market's telling us. And, you know, I, I think that uh, I would agree that there's the Republicans are going to hold that. Mm-hmm. Po- yeah. Pointing out that it might not happen. It yep. might not happen, but anything's possible. Um One other thing that was interesting this week that sent stocks higher yesterday um, was that the hope of a COVID-19 vaccine will be available to the public sooner than anticipated. Um, so I think it was Pfizer that came out with relatively strong data on a COVID vaccine. So we'll see where that takes us. 
But again, we've seen this song and dance before yeah. with several other companies. Yeah. So I fully expect that, you know, we're not going to have something in a couple of weeks here. Exactly. And, you know, this is just, I know, something that has played out already before. And we've seen that, you know, markets get excited and then they fall back. They get excited and they fall back. So my opinion, it's, it's more of the same with this. I don't disagree, sir. And the last thing I wanted to bring up was something that I read from uh, Bespoke Investment Group, and they listed four positive outcomes for the market after the election. Um, and I tend to agree with them, so I wanted to, to share this with listeners. So number one, they said that no Democratic sweep likely means no big tax hikes or rollback of the GOP tax cuts, at least for the next two years when the 2022 midterms occur. Prior to the election, investors were worried that a Democratic sweep would, re- would mean a significant capital gains tax hike to go along with any number of tax hikes or income uh, on income or corporations. I agree with that statement. Yep. Number two, no more trade wars. Regardless of your thoughts on the U.S.-China trade partnership, this is one area where President Trump's stance acted as a headwind to the global equity market. So that's there as well. Okay. Um, number three was less of a t- leftward tilt when it comes to the regulatory environment, uh, Biden's cabinet, the Supreme Court, the Green New Deal, etc. The GOP holding the Senate prevents sweeping reforms that are typically viewed as bearish for the market. I agree with that. And number four, less of a chance that mega cap tech gets hurt. Both Democrats and Republicans are mad at big tech for different reasons. And because neither side has full power to get its way on the issue, it's more likely that nothing will get done at all. I agree with that. And remember, the whole uh, feeling here is that just for the next two years, because you need the midterms right. in 2022, the or power of Congress can, could change. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, in this case, if things stay as they are right now, but in two years, you know, Democrats take control of the Senate, then that's a whole new different ballgame. Yeah, it's a different ballgame for the next two years until uh, the election in 2024. Right. Yep. Um, a couple things that caught my eye this week, Matt, was number one, the IRS came out with what the standard deduction is going to be for 2021. So in 2021, the standard deduction will be $25,100 for married couples filing joint and $12,550 for individuals in 2021. Okay. Um, so again, consult your tax uh expert or an accountant for more details on that, but that's what it looks like it will be for 2021. Got it. Um, the second thing that caught my eye was a post by JC Peretz on allstarcharts.com on November 8th, and this was titled, Investors are more confident than ever that a crash is coming. And when everyone thinks a crash is coming, usually it's the opposite. Yeah. And this came from, uh, initially the article was in the New York Post by Robert Schiller. And Robert Schiller has developed a number of indicators that he uses to judge where the market is at any given point in time. And one of those is the United States Crash Confident Index. And it is um, lower than, or excuse me, higher than uh, any point in the last two decades. Two decades. Right now. So you know, I just wanted to kind of read some of the, the verbiage that JC had behind this. And he says this, do stock markets crash normally, or excuse me, do stock market crashes normally happen when investors are expecting one? I'm pretty sure it's the opposite of that. 
Well, this is the chart being passed around this week. We're looking at the United States Crash Confident Index, where fewer than 15% of respondents think no crash is going to happen. So in other words, almost 90% of respondents think a catastrophic stock market crash in the U.S., like that of October 28th of 1929 or October 19th of 1987, is probable in the next six months including the case that a crash occurred in the other countries that spread to the U.S. He says, whenever we've been down near these levels in the crash confidence index, not only did crashes not come at all. Here we go. But these were actually historic buying opportunities in the stock market. I think today is no different. So this is interesting. It just goes back to show that in 2009, it presented a really good buying opportunity for stocks. And also when readings were this high, it presented a good opportunity in 2011 for a buying opportunity. So again, just one of those contrarian indicators that I think is interesting when everyone thinks something is going to happen or someone's on the same side of the coin, then you know I tend to take the opposite side of that. Absolutely, Mark. I mean, for listeners, Remember, it's the things the market is not pricing in or anticipating that tends to have the biggest impact to it. Right. Positive or negative. Right. And I don't want listeners to forget that. Mm -hmm. So um, we have a little delay with our show notes on the podcast, but I will uh, link to that article by JC in the show notes when we get those up and running. We'll get Jenna all over that. So um, the last thing I had was a post by Adam Collins on his blog um, titled Movement Capital. And this was on October 22nd titled Beware of Financial Alchemy. And just wanted to kind of point out a couple of things that Adam uh, says here. So he starts out, um, excuse me, this is under the, the portion where he talks about sacrifice and success in this blog post. Okay. So he says, sacrifice is necessary for success in life and investing. Someone researching portfolio strategies but refusing to save more than 3% of their income is likely spending hours at the gym and eating donuts for dinner. (laughs) They might feel good about doing something, but they won't actually make progress until they make a sacrifice. Investors have to embrace the fact that they cannot predict the best portfolio for the future. There are only a few things that you can control that have a big impact on your finances. If you're young, how much you save. If you're retired, how much you spend. How you behave when the market panics. How your allocation between stocks and bonds is. And how much you pay in fees. Everything else is a rounding error. The issue is we tend to focus on the rounding errors. It's easy to get addicted to an endless rabbit hole of new investing ideas. Announcing a new goal, not even achieving it, gives you a hit of dopamine. Investors get a similar psychological payoff when they constantly buy and sell, even if the activity doesn't add value. I'm so happy that you shared this with listeners. Mm-hmm. I, I find a lot of value in what you just mentioned here. Yeah, and I think we've said this a lot on the podcast before in several different ways, but it just keeps coming up in more things than I'm reading over and over and over again, which I think is great for our industry um, that more of this stuff is getting out there to the public now. So, you know, I'm going to keep bringing up these things. Yeah. And I've gotten positive feedback from a lot of the things you and I have talked about on this podcast. Yeah. So he he finishes with this. The truth about investing in 2020 is there isn't an easy fix for high stock valuations and low bond yields. No strategy can magically transform today's low return opportunity set into high return future. So what can you do? Focus on what you can control and don't get tempted by someone promising 
promising that they can turn lead into gold. Well, well put. Yeah. So um, I really I enjoy his stuff. So again, he has a blog on uh, movement capital. And again, mm-hmm. we'll link to this article so people can read this. Um, but if you haven't checked out Adam's stuff, uh, he does a really good job of, of breaking this down in, in layman's terms for people. Hey, Jenna, why don't you reach out to him and see if he could be a guest on our podcast? I think that'd be good. Yeah, I would like no, that. that'd be great. Yeah. 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 So he does a good job. I think he's kind of in our realm where he does a good job of, you know, towing the line between talking about, you know, markets and investing and valuations and that type of thing um, and kind of you know, putting that together with financial planning topics. So that's why I kind of like reading his stuff. Yeah, I love that, Mark. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's a good one. All right. I got a couple for listeners, Mark. Uh, First is uh, from my good old tool bag, uh, Bespoke Investment Group Research. This is from November 9th. Um, Listeners, uh, to tell you the uh, magnitude of raw data that Bespoke creates on a given week, you could be reading for hours and hours. It's an it's an abundance of raw data, and it's really good. So the one that caught my eye this week, it's titled S&P 500 Performance After a Large Breakout to a New High. Now, this data mark goes back to 1928 to 2020. So let me explain it first. In the entire history of the S&P, there have only been eight other days where it traded up over 2% to a new record high on a closing basis after not having traded at that record high this prior month. Which adjusted yesterday. Exactly, people. sir. So the table below lists each of the prior occurrences. We'll get this up on the show notes. And the chart of each period showing the year before and after the surge are included. Just to illustrate how uncommon this type of move is, the last occurrence was back in March of 2000, Mark, which was three days before a record high, that would stay in place for over seven years and see the S&P ultimately lose half of its value in between. So that one single data point, not good. Mm-hmm. However, while the S&P 500's experience following the last occurrence in March 2000 is enough to make us roll up in a ball on the floor, collectively speaking, the prior eight occurrences have been followed by relatively strong returns over the intermediate to long term. One week and one month later, the S&P's average returns were negative, okay? However, when you look out three months on average, it was positive by 2.6%. Six months out, Mark, 9.5%. One year out, average 13.44. Why am I highlighting this? When people see record highs, it goes back to that article you mentioned a little bit ago that crash must be coming. We're Mm -hmm. at a record high. And guess what? Of all these data points, historically, it's not matching. Mm-hmm. And yeah. one of the most expensive terms that when people say this, I don't believe it is, it's different this time. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a very expensive term to use on Wall Street because history tends to repeat itself one way or another. And when I see this, this is a positive data point that would point that we're not eminent of some large crash. Right. Mark your comments. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this kind of just ties into, you know, I've talked about this before. You know, I like buying things, when, just in my own personal opinion, I like buying things that are at all-time highs because that's showing that, you know, people are buying this so that way for stock a reason. or this index. Yeah, it's there for a reason. It doesn't mean just because we're at all-time highs that a crash is imminent. And one of my favorite 
quotes is the trend is your friend. The so you want to own things friend. that are going up and that are at all time highs because clearly something's going right for that company or that index, right? Love it. Um, the only other thing I will point out, again, small sample size. It's only eight occurrences, it looks like. But, you know, other than, you know, uh, the early 2000s, you know, one year later, this is the data is pretty bullish. Again, pretty one, bullish. one year out, you know, average performance is 13.44%, which is above and beyond the historical average for the S&P. Exactly. So, again, I think it's just good to illustrate that, you know, investors shouldn't be scared to put money to work at all-time highs, in okay. my opinion. This is perfect. You have my, my perfect seg- segue to my next uh, piece of research, okay? My next piece of research is the ISM manufacturing figures for October. Why did I select this? I want to bring the focus now back to what I would call the fundamentals, right? So what's the underlying fundamentals of the economy right now? This is a piece of data that gives us a little bit of a sneak peek back to October. So I'll start first with explaining to listeners what I'm about to discuss. So this is from the Institute for Supply Management, the ISM Manufacturing Index, which used to be called the Purchasing Managers Index, or PMI, Market measures manufacturing activity based upon a monthly survey. This survey is conducted by the Institute of Supply Management and it surveys purchasing managers at over 300 manufacturing firms. Does it every month, okay? We saw a strong rebound again in October. Now, break even for this index is 50. So what it means, Mark, is anything above 50 is showing expansion. Anything below 50 is showing contraction. The magnitude of how far you get away from 50 shows, in essence, how much it's expanding or contracting. Mm -hmm. The overall headline index came in very strong, very strong at uh, 59.3. Now, uh, Jenna, let's get this chart on the show notes for listeners, because this chart, Mark, goes back to the year 2000, goes back 20 years. And you're going to see that we are at a really good high point in this chart. And so when you break it down to a lot of the factors that go into it, positive production, new orders are really positive, backlog orders are growing, Um, business inventories are actually contracting. That's a positive thing, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. When you have inventories contracting, you're going to have to resupply them. Um, Employment is the only thing that's kind of break even right now in the index. Prices paid are through the roof, 62 um, was prior month 65 for October. That's really expanding. Um, all the underlying data for me was very strong, which points to forward-looking um, positive economic activity. Yeah, and I think that, you know, obviously over over the long term, I think, so people can't look at this and be like, oh, this means that, you know, next month everything's going to be hunky-dory. I think the sure. stuff takes time to play out oh, throughout yeah. the economy, but... You know, I think it's it's obviously good when, you know, purchasing managers are, you know, purchasing supplies and, and um, you know, prices uh, are going up. Backlog orders are going up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. To make their product and sell to, to consumers. So if all this stuff caught, is caught my eye again is those inventories being down. That, that's good. because They're going to have to replenish them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, again, just a little tidbit of, of raw data, factual data that is telling me the underlying fundamentals of the economy are not bad. Mm -hmm. They're not bad. Improving, for sure. Back to you, my friend. Um, So this week's financial planning topic of the week, and this isn't to 
you know, put fear into anybody, but the title of it is, is a little, you know, I don't really like it, but it's titled uh, 11 Scariest Retirement Statistics in 2020. And this is by Ginger Salza on Think Advisor from um, October 30th of this year. And I only highlighted three of them uh, because there were 11 of them and we could, you know, spend a full, you know, hour or two hours talking about all of them. So I just wanted to highlight a few. Okay. Okay. So the first one is that only 25% of Americans are on track to maintain their lifestyles in retirement. According to Ken Deitchwald, the rest will need to work longer, move to lower cost housing and reduce many other expenditures to maintain their standard of living, largely due to the coronavirus downturn. He also found that 80% of Americans didn't know how much money they need for retirement. So again, not a huge survey guy, but you know, that's kind of a frightening number if that is true, not saying it is, but he's pretty much saying one in four Americans are not on track to maintain their lifestyle in retirement. So, you know, what can people do, you know, right now to figure out what changes they need to make to be able to spend the same amount of money that they have been during their working years in retirement? I think there's a couple things you can do, right? Okay. So if you, you know, we have our, our 5% rule, right? So we're comfortable sending our clients 5% of their total portfolio value to help supplement their living expenses in retirement. On an annual basis. On an annual basis. Correct. So if you take 5% of your invested assets right now, combine that with whatever social security income you're going to get and whatever pension income you might have and see, hey, is that what I'm spending today? And if not, you know, what changes do you need to make to make sure you start saving enough money to be able to spend that money in retirement. That's one way to go about it. The other way is a couple podcasts ago, uh, I talked about an article from uh, Nick Majuli that he says that people tend to need 25 times their annual spending uh, in the form of investable assets to be able to live the same way they want to in mm -hmm. retirement. So that's another way to do it. Do you have any other suggestions how people could calculate this? So, you know, we're, we we get to the point where we're not at one in four Americans are, are not prepared to be able to live the same way in retirement. Yeah, I mean, I go back to it. You know, I would find a um, a trusted uh, professional. Uh, you know, ask your your network of uh, you know friends and family, and you know, we got people like Aaron on staff that can run a true financial plan that can help them track and their their progress towards retirement. I think it's it's technology and tools like that that I think are underutilized by a lot of people. And there's a lot of free tools online that people can. There's tons of them. You know, let's just take one of the most popular uh, 401k plan sponsors, Fidelity, right? They have tools right on their system. I'm not saying that they are extravagant or robust, but it at least gives you a basic idea. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. And I know Smart Asset is another one that they have a, a bunch of tools for, you know, retirement projections and that type of thing. But you can find a lot of stuff online for free. And if you wanted to take it a step further, then you could talk with an advisor or something like that. But um um, signing up for Social Security website, so you have your actual benefit information. You can go to SS, uh, SSA.gov. Yeah, SSA.gov, and then you can yeah you can sign up, make an account, and you can see what your estimated benefit statements are. You know, write a letter to your uh, previous or current company for their pension to to request an updated uh, pension benefit statement. Mm -hmm. Stuff like that's what you got to be doing. You know, at least on an annual basis to see where these figures come in. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. Um. 
The next one was 42% of investors sold stock, 88% of them regretted it. Huh. In the reaction to the plunge in stocks in mid-March, 42% of investors in a survey by Magnify Money sold at least one stock, while 24% sold all of their holdings. 24%. Mm-hmm. 69% of those who sold stock at the beginning of the pandemic greatly regretted it, while 19% said they were somewhat regretful. And again, it goes back to... Your, What's the moral of the story here? You just can't try to jump in and jump out. And then jump back in. <laughs> it goes back to what we said earlier. I mean, one of the toughest decisions that we see is not the the sell, but to make mm-hmm. the decision to get back in. Yeah. And, you know, again, I don't know how accurate accurate this survey is. I don't know the base of people that they, they judge this off of, but we have seen a bunch of data that, you know, people, a lot of people did sell in, in February. And that's, again, where you transition money from weak hands to stronger hands. That's right. And one thing you kind of always have mentioned invest for your risk tolerance, your goals and objectives. Don't be trying to time this market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those things where it feels so right at the time in February and March that the world is ending and you need to to put all your money in cash. We were talking in time horizons of just life and society days, not even weeks or months. Mm -hmm. And that just played right into that, that psych, that, that, that psychology aspect of, of the fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And the last one I wanted to mention today was 80% of older Americans don't understand retirement planning. Four and five Americans age 50 to 75 fail to understand the basics of how to successfully plan for a financially secure retirement, according to a study released by the American College of Financial Services. The survey also found that only three in 10 respondents had a plan in place to fund long-term care needs, while only one in four actually had long-term care insurance. Hmm. Interesting. One in four had long-term care insurance? That seems high to me. (laughs) It does seem high because it's just crazy, crazy expensive. Yeah. So, you know, again, this is something that I think is a problem. You know, four in five Americans age 50 to 75 fail to understand the basics of how to successfully plan for, you know, a financially secure retirement, I think people would be more apt to do this stuff if they understood it, I think, in my opinion. Agreed. Um, you know, I think for a long for a long time, I've thought that if, you know, companies offer this to their employers, that they would dramatically see an increase in contributions to the 401k plan. Um, even if companies bring an outside advisor in to work with their their uh, employees and the company pays for it, I think you would see a dramatic increase in people understanding this stuff. That, that's an excellent point. Because I think that it's just, <clears throat> it's such a hard um, industry to really want to learn a lot about because I think people are scared, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of professionals uh, in our industry talk down yeah, exactly. To, to, exactly. To clients, and people and it's not okay. No, yeah, and people don't want to deal with it. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think, you know, if people were able to understand this stuff more and it was breaking down for them that they would be more willing to spend time and energy, you know, to put a, a plan together for themselves. Agreed. Um, but again, it's just one of those things that, you know, I think that 
people are um, embarrassed to, to say that they don't understand some of this stuff. And, you know, we just got to figure out a way to kind of break down that wall to, to show people it's OK that you don't understand this stuff. But let's help you understand it at least a little bit so that we can we can start planning for for your retirement, because I think the direction that we're going is that if we keep it up at the rate that we're at, it's going to be less common that people actually retire and people just work their whole lives until they die. I agree. Um, I agree. And socio socioeconomic status does not even equate to um, having their financial game plan together. Mm -hmm. You know, you talked about a couple podcasts ago how you know there's been people with multi millions who have passed without a will, mm -hmm. and so just because you know you might perceive somebody to have um, a good amount of a, of a retirement nest egg doesn't necessarily mean they have a game plan and they got their financial act together. Right. So this is across the whole spectrum. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, that's all I had for today. Is there anything else before we leave it there for the week? I do not, Mark. I do not. Looking forward to next week's podcast already. I'm already generating uh, some content that uh, couldn't fit this one. So next week should be a good one. Okay. All right. Well, we will leave it there for the week and we will be back with you next week uh, for the 72nd episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in and we will be back with you next week. Take care, listeners. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.